I think we should probably have started off with the song by The Who. Which one is that? Maybe, who did Money, Money, Money? Who did Money? Uh, I believe that's, isn't that Pink Floyd? Oh yeah, that's right, it was Pink Floyd. I'm starting to show my age, I don't even remember the songs that were popular when I was young anymore. And, and I know infinitely old trivia that nobody my age would know. Yeah, it's because your dad's an old guy. So listen, money. We, we were talking in our last podcast. We said we would talk to people about money, banking, and all those kinds of things. And so we're going to do that today. And um, so look, here's the reality. Money is nothing more than bartering. It's a mechanism by which we facilitate the process of value. It's uh, it's fagazi, fagazi. It's a little bit of weird. It's, and, it's an accounting tool. It's an accounting tool. It can be in a physical form, such as coins and notes, which appears that the governments worldwide would love to get rid of that. Well, but, only uh, if you're a super conspiracy person. I'm a super conspiracy person. But uh, yeah, you have... Uh, You have a fiat money system. You've got a lot of things going on here. So let's talk a little bit about money. So years ago, people uh, traded uh, livestock, grain. They uh, had uh, different kinds of shells and beads, uh, all sorts of commodities. They bartered. Then you started having things like shekels and just, you know, sacks of this and that and traded women and and, uh, children and firstborn girls and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's been an interesting world that we live in. Yeah, you you have a lot of interesting mediums of exchange, but at the end of the day, it's all exchanging value. It's all exchanging labor and, and resources. Um, functionally, that's, I don't know, come at us in a lot of different forms. Uh, people have tried a lot of different stuff, uh, I guess, from the earliest of days. The, what, the Sumerians were using tablets to re- basically trade ledgers around. Yep. And that's really the oldest that we have in... As far as recorded history, um, I will assume that that date will continue to get pushed back further and further since people assume that money, the invention of money and the invention of of, uh, the exchange of value is some magical technology when, in my my opinion, it it seems to be something that's just kind of obvious. The moment you can't exchange uh, everything all at once in one big trade, you have to be able to keep track of it. Right, so yeah. you have to have uh, you have to have a store of value to then exchange to somebody else. And as time has gone on, there has been uh, let's call them mutual agreed uh, forms of value rather than just straight bartering. Obviously, the tablet, uh, the the tablet ledgers and things like that, obviously are something that's uh, pretty simple. But then they obviously get more and more complicated as time goes on. So all of this cryptocurrency that everybody talks about. Is uh, nothing new. Uh, the oh, no, no. It's th- they're geniuses. They reinvented the wheel. They did. They reinvented the wheel. Uh, written documents uh, fade and they go away. It's amazing that we have anything from so long ago. But the reality is uh, economic systems have preceded uh, whatever we have left of written history from long, long ago. It's uh, complex. It is what you said. It's literally record-keeping. And... Evidence of written, documented accounting and ledger systems, you know, money, coins, etc. Um, it literally goes back to days in which they wrote on clay, on leather, paper that they made, which was crude. And some were, you know, kind of neat. Bamboo, they cra- scratched things into metal. I mean, people have been trying to keep track of yeah, this, there, that, and the other. Kinds, there's an amazing number of different systems. I mean, 
we could go into an academic talk about this for the next four or five hours. We could probably talk just about systems. the tally stick. Well, yeah, I mean, you got just, but there are so many different ways of doing it. But, you know, as far as money goes into to a more modern form of, of trading, other than unique and rare items, which, of course, in the current day, we still do such things, you know, uh, gold and diamonds and things like that are, are, are an, a medium of exchange uh, store of value just due to their rareness, right? Right. Um, their, their unique properties, uh, you know, certain areas where certain things are unique, those things became currency too. And as time goes on, everybody wants to standardize things and prevent counterfeiting or case of governments, they want to control what the value is. They want to control the system of currency. So what do they do? They find ways to make unique, uh, let's call them, uh, difficult to counterfeit methods of transmitting value and that's uh where the where coinage comes up i have a gentleman i know who says that uh, human beings have only been around for three thousand years <laughs> but uh yeah uh, seven thousand years ago in mesopotamia you had a uh, a system uh, an accounting system a monetary system it was very very accurate but uh, we can go back further than that i'm not going to pronounce it uh, properly but the agakorian uh back a uh, thirty thousand years ago that's thirty thousand years ago same damn thing they it's all about accounting you know i owe you you owe me let's make everything equal one two three it's always been that way well yeah i mean it's it's about a lot of these things have to do with you know like i said before it's it's your time so services labor that sort of thing but then on the other end you've also got actual physical resources that can be traded and stored and a lot of those are really in history most of them are based around crops. So you have the ability to grow corn crop or grain crop and fast forward. Or uh, you need you need to buy some things now because your grain crop isn't going to be ready to harvest for another couple months. So you need to borrow against your crop, right? Yep. So it's just really basic stuff that obviously the, the bedrock of, the, of uh, the modern financial system ends up being really basic human instincts on trading their time and, and their resources and, and trading the resources through time. So precious metals have been used for a long, long time. And uh, of course, they were always used for barter, you know, gold. and, and But melting them down and having the, uh, the Prince of uh, Darkness or whoever else on the uh, coin um, basically uh, commoditized this. Romans used a lot of bronze, for example. And... You know, it's it's crude. You know, some of these things may have been absolutely beautiful, but over time they get a little worn. But I, I guess the thing that I want everybody to understand is that gold and silver and diamonds throughout history, regardless of language, Spanish, French, Hebrew, I don't care where you were, um, they were quite literally the, I guess, bedrock of what you would call today modern currency. Yeah, modern currency, as far as I understand, goes back to the Ionian, Greek Ionian, uh, I guess, city-state of Lydia. Yep. And that's the origin of of modern, modern, uh, difficult to reproduce currency. And from there, concepts pretty simple. You use somewhat a uh, what's called difficult to mine or difficult to replace material. Usually, things like copper, nickel, things like that. They wear, but they also don't wear too much. Um, and then they cast them, I, I assume. You know, as time has gone on, it's gotten more complicated, but the same process is effectively the same. You take some precious metals, you 
mint them into a coin and the government says this is money. Yeah, and, and gold is a good example. I mean, gold was in, in vogue and, and all the rage back in the day, you know, when uh, people were wild and crazy. Then they uh, jerked everything off, and uh, then they well, said— Well, gold's a unique one, though. Yeah, because but— Because gold is, is, a, is, a, is a precious metal. It's a commodity, but it is also a store of value in, correct. in certain circumstances. So it's, it play, gold is this unique thing that sits on both sides of the fence, depending on what time period you're in. But a fellow by the name of uh, Wild Frederick II, he uh, reintroduced uh, gold coins back during the Crusades. And uh, then eventually you had a lot of silver that worked its way in uh, besides gold. And uh, bada bing, bada boom, bada bang, that was really when things really started uh, uh, getting going. So we also have copper coins. Of course, the copper comes from Copper Harbor, Michigan. A lot of it's been uh, dated many, 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 many years ago, so uh, we won't get into that. But um, i got to tell you, boys and girls, if you think uh, we've only been around for a little while, you're wrong. No, humans have been doing the same thing. It seems like on repeat for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and so, for example, the Bank of England went through a national catastrophic event back in the 1730s when, oh, guess what? Everybody who was issued money demanded that it be mm, gold. They said, yeah, we don't trust your paper money here anymore. You don't trust your IOUs. And they literally had something called a run on the bank in the 1730s. Eventually, the merchants, uh, they saved the bank and the nation by guaranteeing the finances of the Bank of England. Yes, that is a very interesting uh, interesting time period. So all you who think that uh, we've never seen this before, I love to make fun of people who are ignorant. Well, not ignorant, just stupid. Uh, ignorant doesn't know, and they don't know they don't know. That's okay. But I'm talking about people who, are, who should know better. You know, that's just stupid. We have had this stuff going on for a long, long time. I mean, even Aristotle and Plato talked about, you know, the, uh, the, the hucksters and, you know, are making lead into gold. Uh, it's a time, time-told thing. Counterfeiting money has been a desire forever. So let's talk about counterfeiting money. Let's talk about gold. We'll talk about a few different things. And when it comes to cryptocurrency, when, it, when you have people who are literally making things out of thin air, um, that's the problem. And we have banking institutions that are being run by children who do not listen to history. A lot of what the Federal Reserve is going to be doing, they tell you, you just got to pay attention to it. And um, I don't know what the problem is. I heard, I heard today somebody say, in fact, I think it was the podcast you and I were listening to during lunch. Guy said that the Federal Reserve tells you what they're doing. But the problem is there's no central communication system anymore. I thought about there never has been a central communication system. It was very uh, discombobulated, but then ABC, NBC, BS basically dominated things. Well, his, newspapers. I think if that's what he was referring to, no, I was he, like, he, his point was, was not, referring. His point was not that there was wasn't a central communication system. His point was that there is no trust in what they say is real because nobody trusts anything that comes out of a government official's mouth. Yeah, that's not good. Which you know is is a problem. Well, I was going to mention, go back a little bit. You you totally skipped over the invention of paper money. Oh, let's do that. Uh, the invention of paper money is Chinese. Oh, there you go. 
If ever, <laughs> you know, here you go. For all the Trumpers out there, paper money is originated by the Chinese. It's, not, it's another communist threat. But it, but it's funny. You talked about how, you know, paper forms of, of record keeping and money at some point started to appear all over the world. Obviously, it took until, uh, you know, the, the accurate reproduction, you know, effectively printing presses to appear, which the Chinese had a, a large part in the original creation of a lot of printing press technologies and stuff. And uh, it's interesting, though, because from a government perspective that works on a really long time scale, a government-issued uh, money in, in paper form is very desirable, in my opinion, because you have some built-in deflation. <laughs> you have a built, built-in a certain amount of deflation in there, especially in ancient times when paper was a lot less durable and, uh, you know, they're thinking on longer time scales. If we go back to clay pots as a form of a currency. I think everything's been used as a foreign currency. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, think about it. What, you know, you carried your pot into, not, not smoking, but you, you carried your, your clay pot that's all nice and pretty looking, and you go into Walmart and trade it for some, some goods. And you drop it as you're checking out, and you go, oh, no. Oh, no food for you. That's a deflationary event right there. <laughs> but hey, listen, funny thing is, that's pretty much what some of these banks experienced. Oh, for sure. They had clay Absolutely. pots and they dropped them. Yeah. You know, well, that's one aspect I always, I always thought of. Um, there's, if you're into like ancient Egyptian history and stuff, there's all of these really, really uh, you know, 10 plus thousand years old is, is the current estimate based on whatever. Um, we'll go into it. But there were all of these um, really, really hard uh, vases made out of um, stone. So obviously making anything out of stone is hard, but making a highly accurate, very, very, very symmetrical, perfect little uh, vases out of out of hard stone is even harder. It's it's a, amazing. You can look them up online. Uh, some of them are made out of extremely hard rocks like diorite uh, that are really prone to cracking. And, and just the, the fact that they even exist at all is amazing, but there's thousands of them. We're not going to cover the whole thing about how no, they might no, have been. No, no. But too conspiracy, too much conspiracy. Well, there's no conspiracy. It's just it's it's a it's it's an interesting thing that's currently being being examined. But but the point is, is that they found thousands of these things at different areas uh, in de- different pyramids over time. And one thing I always wondered is were those being used as a form of currency trading because they were so rare and so difficult to make that you know the store value must have been wild, at least among you know the elites of uh, of Egypt. And for those of you who are uh, into the Bible, you can go to, well, let's take uh, an example. Mark 11, 15 through 17, Jesus didn't care for the money changers, and uh, he didn't like them at all. So there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of interesting things in the Bible about that. Yeah, money is just a, it is a core element of being human, it seems to me. It, trans, it, it transfers throughout time and culture and everything. Everybody comes up with it. Everybody uses it in various forms and methods. So anyway, to, to move on uh, to what you were saying earlier about the Fed and the lovely modern system of, of monetary policy and monetary uh, transmission that we use today. Yes, the Federal Reserve does transmit. Make it. They, they issue their forward guidance. They issue their the Fed minutes, and it's totally open. Anybody can go read it. Nobody does. Nope. But they telegraph what they're doing pretty well. 
And even when they don't telegraph what they're doing, you can usually stay ahead of it pretty easily. It's pretty obvious what they're doing. They're always kind of chasing their own tail. Well, you know, the I don't know. I'm just I get a little frustrated because I think you, we talk about these kinds of things, and it gets a little frustrating when when I know that there are a lot of kids who have graduated high school and college. Well, we know there are a lot of people who graduated college with PhDs. They don't understand. You know, like you say, the Holy Roman Empire now, and everybody freaks out. Oh, you can't talk about the Holy Roman Empire. I don't know if that's a thing. I don't know if that's a thing because that's a very it's a very important distinction. Nobody really Holy Roman Empire. Uh, the only other term for it is the Habsburg Empire. There you and go. Then, but even then, it kind of translates what time period you're talking about. It. Kind but of, but I bring that up because Charlemagne in 800 A.D. Uh, was really pretty cool in having a standard set coin. It was, a, it was called a silver penny, and uh, it was the only penny. It was that was it. That was the denomination. It was the silver penny, one thing. And um, but it was minted without the oversight of bishops, without the oversight of uh, cities, feudal lords, fiefdoms. There were uh, about uh, almost twelve hundred of these coins. And they were induced in a big way, and um, kind of like one of the things they called a dozen pennies was called a shilling, and uh, twenty shillings was called a pound. Okay, sure. so now you kind of know where the word you know an English dollar or an English pound comes from. Um, so there was you know different times in which this coin was debased um, and just not viewed as worth anything, took place between 1340 and 1360, 1417 and 1429. And when you say these years and dates, it's always amazing to me because you have major economic um, events that take place. And uh, then you had people that were, you know, basically taking different items and mixing it with the silver. Oh, yeah. And now you had counterfeiting. Or the, or the, even in some cases, the government does it itself. I mean, this story is told all throughout the Roman Empire. This con- they were in a constant series of fluctuations of debasing and rebasing the currency in, in various ways to the point that near the end of, of the Roman Empire, as we know it proper, both East and West, as conjoined entities, um, they were paying their military with a, with a currency that was totally different from what the normal people used. And the military was being paid with, with actual gold value, or gold-backed currency um, because they demanded it. They leveraged their, their, uh, their, the benefits of collective bargaining, and they, uh, they forced the government to pay them in something that was actually worth something that wouldn't be debased by the time they got home from a war or they got done with their, uh, uh, their career in the... Uh, in the military, and it, you know, of course, at different points, you know, the various, uh, I guess, in the Roman Empire in particular, they had uh, retired. If you retired from a full career in the Roman military as a as a soldier, you were given a certain amount of land and other perks in society, which of course transcend the value of the money at, at any given time, right? So it's uh, it's pegging your 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 retirement or your value to something that's real and not something that can be debased, which happens over and over and over. Somebody wants to spend more money than they have, eh, we'll just uh, we'll, we'll revalue everybody else's money and print more. Yeah, and I guess I like, to, I like to break things down where people can actually see it in their mind, for those who can critically think. Look, um, when England was minting their sterling silver, 
sterling silver coins, they were about 92-93% in purity. What did people do? They melted them down and put some copper in it, and the Spanish called them billions. So if you want to know, I'm a billionaire. Yeah, you're just uh, sterling silver with a whole lot of copper. Maybe that uh, is an interesting thing to think about. So you had mentioned China, and they introduced well, a paper also, money. But that's also where the, you know, people, you know, used to call it the British pound sterling. Right. So there's a lot of little little words here and there that refer to, you know, especially the British monetary system, uh, the shilling, the pound, the, I guess, what do they use? The pence? They, there's yep. all these little phrases that they use for, you know, different denominations of, of currency that are still around to this day. I mean, you talk to anybody, you, know, you talk to a British person about money and they still use all these terms, even though, you know, we still use, we, even though the whole world is basically on a digital ledger system. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, we, you have to be careful because people get all, all wigged out over this. But you used to have coin clippers. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody forgets. Uh, I mean, everybody always wonders why do your coins have the little ridges on the side? And that was that was a technological invention of extreme significance because, you know, back in this time period, we we're talking about real uh, hard value money, meaning, like you said, you know, people are mixing things and whatever. But ultimately, the value of the money is supposed to be the value of the the commodity that is put in to make the coin, right? So you have an ounce of gold, it's worth an ounce of gold, that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, certain people thought, that people, certain people figured out that, hey, you know, these, uh, these coins, they have the molds, obviously, back then. You can find some pictures of uh, old coins going back several hundred years and how the molds weren't all super consistent like they are today. Today, they're perfect. But back then, you could look at the mold and you could look at the stampings on each side and you could just... You could just notch a little bit off, clip a little, a little bit off, and of course, a little bit doesn't mean a whole lot. You don't really notice it. Oh, it's wear. Oh, it fell on the ground. It got dented. Something like that. Nobody thinks twice about it. But do that for a thousand coins, and now you're, now you're taking a little fraction and turning. That actually means something. So, so if you don't know over what time it got to be really egregious. Um, yeah. you can look it up online at some of these pictures of coins <laughs> that survive. It's like <laughs> kind of surprised that people had the uh, kahunas to do to. To, to even get let it get that far, um, so the government's response to that, aside from various scandals and upheavals in society and stuff that happened in different places, was they invented those ridges. And different coins have different ridges. There's um, a certain amount of spacing. It's kind of like a dots dimples on a golf ball. There's countable and reproducible, and they can figure out pretty quickly whether somebody's been messing with it or not. And it's pretty obvious. It's a it's a very basic technology. And you might wonder, why would somebody be taking a clippers and cutting a coin down? Well, if something costs less than a penny. Exactly. And you, cut, you cut coins into, into segments. Right. Because the coin ultimately was supposed to be valued at what the material in it is worth. So, yeah, I mean, that's something you talk about uh, in American history. I, I vividly remember, you know, America, the history of American money is even weirder because states and different regions within each state had different kind of coins and companies would issue their own money. It was all over the place. The standardization of money is very much a uh, late 19th, early 20th century thing. Um, but yeah, people would clip coins and cut them in half or quarters or eighths or whatever. It was a, a common occurrence. So all the things we're talking about, whether it's the Islamic golden age or 
It's the age of the uh, Mongol Empire in India. It doesn't make any difference what we're talking about. It's always about, is there liquidity? Is there a free flow of exchange? Is there a common denominator of what something is worth? And this is something that has literally befuddled governments and people um, forever. Literally forever. Yeah. It makes sense from a very simple perspective because there's so many entrenched interests, right? The government wants the ability to inflate or deflate the currency at will. They don't want their they don't want their money, to, their ability to buy and spend and tax to be tied to you know things as stupid and whatever as the productive output of their their citizens. Ah, that's annoying to have to manage. So you know sometimes. Uh, Sometimes the king wants to buy some nice stuff and <laughs> he needs some more money than is available. And then, of course, people, uh, you know, what is it? I, I, I like to say that, you know, money is, for most people, it's just a, an exchange of their, of their time, right? Right. At least uh, as far as labor wages go. And uh, people should value that very highly. People should be very critical of the taxes that are on, that come upon their, uh, especially their income wages, Um uh, I mean, income from their wages and um, or labor and how they should be very critical as to where it's stored and how it maintains or doesn't maintain value and what it's invested in. Um, obviously, you know, wages are very different from investment income, you know, and just from a basic societal perspective, it's, I understand it, but at the same time, I still, as a, as a putting my normal person hat on, it's still kind of gross that, you know, you're, most most countries, your investment income is taxed at a much lower rate than wages. And the reason for that is really simple. It's that wages are reliable. There's no activity. There's very little activity that's going to happen that's going to reduce uh, your overall wages in a way that your investment income can dry up. So, you know, it's a reliable source of taxable income. And anyway, point being is just that, you know, it's something that there's all these interests on every side and, you know, you totally understand why each interest group, let's call it, has the reaction they have and why these cycles continue to happen because the government wants to spend and the people want to keep their money. It's, it's pretty, it's really pretty simple. So and of course there's everybody in between. So we serious middlemen transacting <laughs> business and taking a cut and making sure things move from point A to point B. Right? So for all of you uh, who are into the, the Bible or the Bible or whatever you want to call it, uh, you can go nuts over that one. Uh, so th there's a couple of things we talked about in a prior podcast. We talked about the 1944 Britain Woods Agreement. Sure. And one of the things that really irks my, uh, and gets me going, is when you have uh, public uh, encyclopedia and other sources that purely lie and don't tell the truth. And one of those is blaming Richard Nixon, who in 1971 removed the United States from what is known as the gold standard. And people will say it destroyed the monetary system. It destroyed the agreement of Bretton Woods. And, um, but it, and it's commonly referred to as the Nixon shock. What you have to understand about that, and that's, it's, it's never discussed, is that one of our friends during World War II, a fellow who uh, they give him credit for leading the French resistance, is Charles de Gaulle, a man with the biggest nose other than Jimmy Durante on the face of the earth. <laughs> um, so Charles said, uh, yeah, okay, uh, we're going to demand everything be paid in gold. So 
you, you had a run on the bank. If you want to call it that, you had a run on the bank. Go ahead. Well, it's, it's way more complicated than that, though. I'm trying to make it easy. So you go for it now. Well, the, the, the backstory to this is even more important because people think of, well, uh, Nixon gold standard. Oh, that's what it is. That's not true because the U.S. Inflate, or in, inflated our currency like crazy using all kinds of methods throughout uh, the years prior to Nixon. And the reality is, is that I believe it was during Roosevelt or, yeah, well, Rose, during Roosevelt, during the Depression, they, they you know, in a, in a way to try and control deflation, they froze the, the price of gold right at $33 an ounce. I think it stayed there for like, what, one or two decades, a long time. Oh, yeah. Well, you had wage and price controls. You had uh, coupons for food and gas. I mean, they did everything to lock it down. And well, and one other thing they did is they made it illegal for private ownership of gold. Yep. People don't remember that. Wacky. Um, anyway, but what is it? Uh, during, I want to say, I want to say it was during World War One. They we were effectively removed from the gold standard proper as quote unquote hard money people believe in. Right. Mm-hmm. Basically, what they mean what what they mean by that is. It wasn't exchangeable one-to-one or, you know, they started working with the ratios. There was not a standard set, you know, $1 is equal to a certain amount of gold or anything like that. So the, the true gold standard was, let's just call the definitions were manipulated. And then lots of stuff happened. You fast forward, but then French were doing whatever they were doing. I actually don't know the history behind what, what Charles de Gaulle's crazy plan was. But it's important to remember that because we had this... Uh, Really, all that was left by the time Nixon was in and this whole situation with France happened was there was an exchange, right? So your U.S. dollars were convertible to gold notes, basically. And you could exchange those for physical physical gold or I think even silver certificates, right? Yep. So you could... You could yeah, gold and silver certificates. Yeah, so you could exchange your dollars for a gold or silver certificate, which was then redeemable for a physical current... A physical, um, currency gold or silver right yeah and if you happen to have some of those as we do guess what you they can still, you, still hold their value they hold their value but you can't go in and say give me my gold not anymore <laughs> not no. anymore um but so it's important to remember that that system was in place a lot of people especially you know especially older people will still remember that because that was still those things people talked about it was very normal uh, public knowledge um so you had this exchange system where we guaranteed that we would back our we would be, we would exchange our currency. So you didn't have an you didn't really have a gold back system as much as you had a, a gold exchange system, right? And De Gaulle was going after gold or silver or both. I don't remember. Well, the De Gaulle was going after gold, but what you have to remember, which we've not really talked about, is how the Hunt brothers. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. And they, by the way. Well, that was in the 80s, though, right? Uh, that was in the 80s, but I can't remember his first name, but Hunt was the richest man in the world. Yep. He was worth a gazab of dollars. Yep. And then when... Uh, when and he went insane for hard money theory. And then, yeah, and then all this... <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of things. He, he had the wrong intel with the wrong people who happened to be all in the Middle East. But, uh, yeah, when that went south, he went, he went with it. But... Go ahead. Well, so so De Gaulle had De Gaulle knew exactly. Okay, he can utilize his foreign exchange reserves and exchange those for gold. And Nixon and the different economic problems that were going on at the time, 
in the United States, uh, their response was basically middle finger. We're getting off. We're, we're no longer going to. We're no longer going to exchange dollars for gold certificates. So if you have them, you have them. Use them if you want them. But once that, we're done. And um, that significantly changed. You know the quote unquote backing of the currency is. I mean, it's, it wasn't really gold backed, like I said, because they they shifted in in World War One the fractions and how they how they actually did the proper fractional backing of dollars to gold. But at this point, it was still exchangeable. And so you, you look at this time period, and uh, all de Gaulle was was doing the same thing that George Soros did to the British pound in the 90s. Um, so people think of uh, George Soros as this genius. He's a genius because of timing, but uh, and people don't really know about that either. George Soros made his mark, especially uh, in the 90s, uh, with uh, currency trading. And it was this time period when all these European countries were integrating into the EU's common marketplace, utilizing the euro, and everybody was transitioning and figuring out different ways to kind of integrate their monetary system into the utilizing the euro from their own various currencies, from the pound, lira, franc, whatever, into, uh, into, into using euros. And the British kept their... Pound, they refused to completely let go of it, even though it was pinned and there was all kinds of weird, uh, basically parallel monetary systems. Uh, even today, you know, you go to you go to any place in Britain, uh, you can pretty much buy anything in pounds or euros. Pretty much everybody will exchange either one. Um, but back then, they had this whole system when all these countries were integrating, and people. Uh, the government decided to basically pin so there was a stable exchange for either one. So as anybody can imagine, that's always going to be a bad idea because these things are, the value can fluctuate a little bit and the government was guaranteeing X and yeah, that wasn't sustainable. So I won't go into the details of the trade. It's very interesting. You can go on online and read about the specifics of how they pulled it off. But at the end of the day, they cost the Bank of England billions and billions of pounds by leveraging different aspects of the uh, the pound and, and the euro exchange rate. And that has happened on several occasions. I mean, Soros is not the only one that has done that. No, but it's just, the, I think it's just the most famous one. Right. You know, and but that's what de Gaulle did to us with gold. It's like, well, you, your, your currency is worth X and gold is worth Y. Well, I'm just going to exchange your currency for gold because it's going up and you have this you have this promise. And so from there, that's where all the conspiracy stuff comes from, where you want to audit the Fed, audit the Federal Reserve, oh, audit. The gold's gone. Audit Fort Knox. The gold's not there. And, you know, it's. it's well, Nixon uh, stole it. Yeah, Nixon stole it. He, he and uh, B.B. Rebozo went down to Miami <laughs> and, uh, and uh, they partied hardy until Dick died. Um, so what we're trying to do is just kind of basically give a little bit of foundation, historical perspective to some things. And we're going to kind of dig into some some current stuff here. But um, 65 years ago was a red-letter day. Um, was for me 65 years ago, but for everybody else, is called the Bank Maricard. The Bank of Maricard was launched by none other than, who else? Bank of America. So the very first third-party credit card. And uh, they were the first organization to go out there and uh, really engage in uh, mass marketing. And so they sent out something around 65,000 credit cards. Think about that. 65,000 credit cards with a line of credit 
to people unsolicited. I used to, I remember getting these things. Listen, I'm telling you straight. You got your credit card in the mail. All you had to do was, oh, yeah. this is 1958. Okay. All around Fresno, California is where they started it. Uh, everybody, well, it, think about this. Um, once upon a time, AOL sent uh, CDs out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything you'd buy, anything related to technology came with CDs in it. Get your free 90 minutes, 120 minutes. So it was By the, the way, a little anecdote about that. I don't. I may have said sure. this before, but but at, at some at one point, <laughs> uh, AOL was responsible for over half of all CDs in, made in the United States. I think I, I think thirty percent of them came in my mailbox. <laughs> but, I mean, it's just this astronomical number of just for one thing, it worked. You know, I, I I've said this a couple of times. I regret this. The one thing I, I regret because I was what. Oh, uh, well, you were uh, Paul at AOL, I believe, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was Paul at AOL.com. Or who is Paul now? He's probably I have a, no idea. He's probably a pope somewhere. Anyhow, um, yeah, so Bank of America uh, issued credit cards. Um, I remember back in the day as a little guy when uh, my dad uh, would say, oh, yeah, this is the d- diner's card. You, you can sure. go anywhere yeah. with a diner's card. I, I, D- yeah, diner's club is still a thing. Yeah. Okay. And then American Express. If you had an American Express card... Once upon a time, that was a big, big deal. It still is to some people. I bought something. This is probably five, four or five years ago now. But I, I paid for something, and at checkout, I was like, "Oh, you, you must come from a really nice family with an American Express card." And I just looked at him. I didn't quite understand because the person was under forty, but apparently that's still a thing, <laughs> even though they advertise like crazy, and anybody can get one. It seems. Yeah, I've, we, I've got. Well, we all got. You've got the same thing. We got platinum cards. But I got a kick out of when WeWork came to Tampa. All you had to do was show them you have a American Express Platinum card. They gave you a f- membership, unlimited membership for one full year. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess that still means some to some people. Well, the, uh, American Express just operates on a different model from all the other cards still to this day. Well, it used to be you couldn't carry a balance on those things. Um, not that we carry uh, a balance. Can you do that? I mean, I, I heard that you can, though. It depends on what kind of card you're issued. If, you're, if you have a traditional charge card, which is what you have, which is what I have, then no, you cannot carry balance. No, that's what I thought. Well, whatever. But they have variations of that same card that have are, are effectively credit cards or there's a credit aspect to it and there's a credit in the Are those charge. those green cards I see people use every once in a while? Uh, no, green is just the regular American Express oh, card. Okay. Um, but no, then, then American Express now has all kinds of products. They have... Regular credit cards issued through other, uh, I think, Visa or MasterCard. They have all kinds of various things. There's, they kind of, they, they stopped focusing on their one thing. But the main thing is, is that that main core of their business, if you're, if you're charging a card on the American Express network, uh, their fee is much, much higher. And they have a very robust rewards program which is very different from other cards. You know what I like about this thing? Uh, we get off, off base, but I, there's been a couple of occasions when I had to fly and get travel like immediately and oh, yeah. just make, make a call and say, I have got to get here and I don't have time and I got to leave. I got to be there in 12 hours or I, I, I like and that aspect of it. They'll hook you up. Yeah. They, they do a good job. Um, so anyways, bank America card, um, bank America launched their bank America card, 1958. Uh, you had Remember Discover? Is that still around Discover oh, yeah. card? I have a Discover card. It's my first credit card. Do you card. really? Yep. Wasn't that like a Sears thing or something like that? I don't know, but hmm. I know they were one of the most generous uh, uh, secured cards when I 
first uh, got a card, and uh, yeah, they're still like the best, as far as I know. I mean, this you know, this is ten years old information now, but uh, they were one of the best uh, credit building new new uh, child out of the womb. Uh, welcome, welcome to the lovely world of credit finance. I get a kick out of people who say things to me when we're networking, like something along the lines. How you? How is it you don't know that? <laughs> I don't do that stuff. I just, you guys give me a couple credit cards and off I go, and whatever you guys handle it. I don't. I don't know how that well, works. Well, also, so much has changed. I mean, you know, but I mean, you've talked about it before. You used to be able to buy houses. Just you know, call up your guy at the bank, and that was all you had to do. I bought a house on a credit card one time. You could. You could have done that too. I had. A, I had enough on there. I bought a house at a credit. Bought a Pulte home. In Brandon, Florida, Brandon, Florida, Bloomingdale, Bloomingdale, uh, Bloomingdale West, I think it was. I bought a house on a credit card, but you know, can't do that stuff anymore. That type of stuff doesn't work anymore. There's uh, (laughs) paperwork and all those BS, and you know, every transaction has to take three years because they need to do a colonoscopy, and it's just it's a whole thing. Now it's uh, well. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Everybody needs to realize this. There is a currency. For the masses, and then there's a currency for everybody else. And there is uh, there are ways in which people are doing what we'll call digital transactions. It doesn't involve cryptocurrency. It's a uh, quiet ledger system, and it's, it goes on. It's, my dad did it with uh, corporate paper back in the day. You know, bank was running short. You go to the Federal Reserve, or you go to Dad. Of course. And uh, so they they took care of it. And I'm not that's not mafia stuff. I mean that. Uh, no, I mean that, that was the world's largest trucking company. He had that's how stuff still works today. You have yeah. you have you have your your public credit markets, and no, I mean banks transact among themselves all day every day to make sure they have proper liquidity ratios and everything. Um, I can't remember the name of it. There's a special term for it, um, but yeah, you know you have loans on your book, and everybody knows you're good for them because everybody knows how you do business. And you come to me, and it's like, hey, you know, I need an extra hundred million dollars. Here's here's a hundred ten million dollars worth of uh, loans. I'll I'll sign over to you in escrow. Okay, thanks. And you know, you need you need an extra hundred million in liquidity for the next couple of days until this different transaction comes through. That's how the real world works. There's people think that banks are just like some you know Scrooge McDuck store of value where they're just going to stick your money and your coins in there. They have absolutely no idea that they're basically just an investment company that manages based on certain special rules and and everything and. Uh, they're lending out the money. They're lending out a huge portion of the assets they have on their books. Um, you know, what is money at the end of the day today? And this in the modern world, money is what's on the ledger sheet of a whole bunch of banks. Did uh, before he died, did the grandpa ever tell you a story of Benton, the Benton moving company? You had Allied and all of them. Uh, sounds familiar. Yeah. So you had the Teamsters were, were uh, screwing around with Benton and uh, they didn't want to unionize, et cetera, et cetera. And I can't remember the circumstances, but uh, my dad came home and mom had dinner. <laughs> he sat down. My mom said, Grant, looks like you had a rough day. He goes, yep, I did, Dorothy. I'm, I'm, I'm fried to the bone, something along those lines. And he, you know, this is back when you had an abacus and a slide rule. Sure. Yeah. And dad, you know, his calculator was, you know, <laughs> the old machine that you cranked the arm. Yeah. You know what I mean? The old thing. Paper. You check your register and all that. He had lent, like, I think, I guess his biggest loan, I think it was like $15, 16 $20 million, something like that, to Benton for payroll and a bunch of other things. And uh, I think he got, he said, oh, make a lot of money. Made a lot of money today. Lent it out at 2%. <laughs> Remember, my mom said, when are they going to pay you back? Doesn't make any difference. <laughs> We're going to make a lot of money. And they paid it back within, I think, uh, 30, 60, 90 days. 
Sure. But, uh, that was a lot of coin back then. Oh, yeah. And uh, he was thrilled about that. But, the, you know, there's a lot, businesses do that. Apple does it. That happens Everybody does it. Constantly yeah. every day. People that... People don't have any sight of it because it's it's not it's not in front of them. It's the same thing with banks. I mean, we talked about you know over the past uh, couple of weeks, like what I just said. You know, people think that uh, it's just my money's in a vault. It's just uh, it's 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 all real. It's there. No, it's not. It's just an investment. You know, you're giving the money to the bank because you have a reasonable ex- expectation of return of your capital plus a little bit of interest, and uh, you know, it's pretty simple. There's there's no uh, there's not a lot of money to be made in having a uh, a one to one liquidity bank that charges a fee to just hold on to your money for you. So banking in all of this money, everything comes down to trust. Absolutely. And you know, let's say Dad, uh, you know, he structured that deal. Um, you know, the company always had every branch for the company, every every train depot. Every, they always had a, a safe. And these weren't little. These were not little safes. These were big safes, similar to what a bank would be. And uh, of course, they had the gold and had their currency in there. They had their ledger books. They also had guns. And the guys, you know, of there course. was yeah. there was no such thing as uh, carrying concealed weapon permits. Everybody carried. They carried guns. So just, no, that didn't happen for a while. Yeah, and uh, you know, the big places, Dallas, for example, always had a Thompson submachine gun. When and they would move the people. I remember. I don't know if you ever knew this, but, you know, the company was the primary transport for the, all the gold bullion that went between the Federal Reserves and, uh, and again, the Federal Reserve Bank, different places. Federal Reserve branch banks, yeah. Yep, they actually kept gold back in the oh, day. Yeah, and absolutely. so Fort Knox, and so Fort Knox is in Oklahoma, and that's, they they transported gold. And so dad's guys, you know, oh, yep. gold, gold shipment's coming, and. He'd rustle up a whole bunch of people, and everybody's carrying machine guns and shotguns, and they would stand out. It was a thing. Yeah. Not a big deal. But it's trust. Now, if you and I, you know, we lend money to somebody and they don't pay us, we can't go and take our pistoles and beat the shit out of them or kill them. We can't, we're not allowed to do that. Not anymore. But there is one organization that can. Yes. Yes. It's called the Secret Service. Well, the IRS. IRS has those guys too. But I'm talking about... When it comes to investigating currency fraud and, and well, of um, course, yeah, that's a whole different counterfeiting. Thing, yeah. yeah, so it's so always kind of an interesting. Um, we have laws against counterfeiting for a private entity called the Federal Reserve. Sure, yeah, they are Federal Reserve notes. So you actually have, and I know, don't get mad at me uh, at this. It's a, it's a public-private institution. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, it's public-private treasury kind of something strange with unique rules, but. They, they have the power to, to do bad things to you. Fair enough? Yeah, of course. That's the problem with cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency, you can't go out and kick somebody's behind for not paying you. You can't go out and get the federal government to go out and go after it. If it is truly dependent upon trust, and that's the thing that I think nobody ever wants to talk about. Well, Every the government... The, point, the problem with crypto is it's inherently deflationary because okay. people will lose their money. There's been... I think a I think a majority of crypto of uh, Bitcoin has been lost. There's no way to get it. It's you know once you lose the private key to your wallet, it's gone. A lot of people have lost their private keys, and you know over time that's just something that's going to continue to happen, especially with a limited amount of uh, of currency. Like the whole the whole thing is just it's it's an interesting experiment. Um, but it really, in my opinion, it really proves why is interesting of an idea it is it 
proves that the existing systems of of value exchange are uh, are are more than adequate. So back in 1982, 1982, I'm working, making money, things are going great. I'm pounding it away, doing fantastic in life. And there's a guy by the name of Ray Dalio, D-A-L-I-O. And he is, uh, well, he's got the world's largest hedge fund. And uh, when he was uh, back in 1982, he was 33. We're talking about trust. Now, trust. Um, Yeah, he made a bad bet. And he made a bad bet because he bet against the Federal Reserve and U.S. Treasury. He thought he knew where inflation was headed. And he said he, you don't want to go in his book, Principles, he makes a comment. He said he had the hubris to think he knew more than the government as to where things were going. He said, don't do that. Don't bet against the government. And uh, that's when he learned to, um, I think, become quite the politician. So he's 33, a man who is now, now, very, very wealthy. He was so broke that he had to sell his uh, second vehicle and borrow $4,000 from his daddy to pay the bills. Today, he's got a net worth of about $16 billion. And I say that because he's nothing special. He's, he may have graduated from Harvard with an MBA, but his undergraduate is no big deal. Um, seems to be kind of a normal guy. But we talked about this when we were outside walking. Yeah, he's, he's got some interesting bed partners now along with uh, Tim Cook and others. And earlier we talked about China and paper. So everything that we're talking about comes down to two words, timing and trust. Timing and trust. And if we begin to see, for example, lack of trust in the banking system, you got a problem. you got to run on the bank. Problem is there's no way to pull your money out of the bank anymore because nobody gives you oh, no. physical currency. Yeah, exactly. You're just moving it from one pot to another. Yeah, it's so, a run on the bank has gone from withdrawing capital from the system to moving it, moving it around from one entity to another. Right. right. And that, that's a unique thing. Although, you know, there is, there is some truth to the fact that, okay, so there's a couple interesting things here to kind of, for people to kind of remember. Um, once you get into this computerization of, of, once you get into computerization of the financial system and things stop being, you know, physical paper ledgers, which effectively computers were invented for the purposes of doing accounting. That's really what it boils down to. Yep. Some of the first computers ever in, in corporate America went into companies like Ford and others who had, you know, a million employees during World War II to do payroll for them, to keep track of people's hours and all that sort of stuff, to pay to pay taxes. Really basic stuff. I, I can't remember the exact number, but man, the number of accountants that Ford had just on payroll just to just to meet, you know, your bi weekly or, or weekly or whatever whatever. It's it was, unbelievable. To meet everybody's paychecks and to accurately do that is wild. So it kind of makes, it's really obvious, you know, accountants were a very high prestige job that, you know, were the first jobs to start being replaced with, with computers. And, you know, they, they cost millions of dollars, but yeah, I mean, it costs you a million dollars a pay period just to hire all these accountants. So, uh, you know, uh, digital ledgers and digital tracking of, of not just money and, and all that, uh, digital accounting became a thing very quickly. And then basically you, you have all of these interbank uh systems for transmitting money effectively it started popping up um i won't go into the various systems and everything it's it's beyond the discussion today but but basically what we have today is a is a distributed ledger system where all these banks transmit money and and resources between each other 
digitally mm-hmm. every day. The SWIFT system, I think, processes what, like oh, five, ten trillion dollars a day. It's yeah, just it's insane. Wild. Um, but that's all done digitally. There's no, we're not ferrying, you know, gold back and forth and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's all IOU and it's, it's all, you know, digital contracts and, and digital money transmission. It's very fast. It, it all works. But the thing people have to remember is this system is distributed in nature. It's yep. based off of the in- independent ledgers of all of these various banks, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. And they base their credit largely, depending on which bank it is, um, especially U.S.-based banks. They base it off of their ability to access funds uh, from, the, from the Federal Reserve. That's really what it comes down to. You, you, bought, you lend money to the bank. They lend it out. They then... You know, borrow a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on what the conditions are, how much risk they're willing to take. So people talk about, oh, cryptocurrencies and this distributed distributed currency and distributed money and all that stuff. Cryptocurrency advocates over and over again surprise me because they are people who have a technology that is in search of a problem. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. They are usually very undereducated and to how the real world works and they continually are invent reinventing things that already exist. Um, it's, it's amazing. I mean, every aspect of it, you know, they, they want to find amazing applications for all oh, this distributed database. And it's like, it already exists. Every, every little thing that they, that they come up with has been done before. They just are shoehorning things in. It's, it's very weird. But regardless, one of the big problems with crypto or anything else, because everything is now digital, is that when you want it, the idea is you need to get it. Just because it shows a value on your ledger sheet doesn't mean that that's what the value is. And these are the kind of things that... Or that it's accessible right now. Correct. So you buy a bond. It's a $1,000 bond. It's paying you 3%, and that was fantastic interest a few years ago and you decide to say yeah i'm going to lock that in for the next 30 years now the federal reserve comes along along with the u.s treasury and well we we think things are getting a little there's a little too much employment we need we need a recession we need to manufacture a recession and um for some reason the government says supply and demand got uh, out of whack Failing to remember, you locked down the country and the world over COVID and did some draconian things. And then, well, you need to get back to work, but you told us to stay home. But you need to come back to work, but you told us to stay home. You need to get back to work. I'm going to retire early. So we have people who are saying, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm done. Well, the Fed in, in some of their minutes in the past uh, couple of years in the period between COVID and now, uh, they basically threw out the window the whole idea that, of supply and demand. They sat back and said, well, all, the only thing we're concerned with right now is, is demand inflation. We don't care about supply. So that's like, just crazy. That's just one side of the curve. Yeah. They, they just threw it out the door. Just, oh, we don't care. We're just, we're, just, we're just focused on the demand. It's like, well, the, of course there's, there's demand because people want the things that they're used to. They're used to being able to get and they're not available. I mean, a good example, just because it's something that, that happened in the same time period and, and continues to be a, a problem is uh, because of machine learning and cryptocurrencies and all this other magic magic BS. Um, we've got a, a, a ridiculous demand on graphics cards and uh, graphics computing units, basically, and especially the really high-end stuff. And because of this, uh, as well as the actions of the companies that are involved in manufacturing, 
Uh, there's just there there hasn't been enough to fully saturate the market's demand for years. I mean, uh, the last I think uh, the the last uh, uh, top of the line graphics card I bought for a a, a self built like actual computer system was like seven hundred something dollars. That same one now is like sixteen seventeen hundred dollars equivalent, mm-hmm. and that's just MSRP. That's the company raising prices and and justifying. Imagine what it is, what it was just a few months ago when there were none on the market. People were paying three and four thousand dollars for something that MSRP fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred. Well, you need it, you need it, and you got to buy it exactly. And there's no way to fix it. There's only so much supply. The companies has you know Nvidia uh, made it very clear that no, we're not making any more. This is this is our allotment and basically tough nuggies. They uh, also properly manage their sales channels to prop to deplete previous generations of cards. So the only thing you could buy was the most recent one. Real, real market manipulation yep. stuff that in prior time periods, people would have gone to jail over. Um, <laughs> but in any case, now it's the American way, eh, Singaporean way, but yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, point being is just people want it. They need it. And people pay ridiculous premiums for stuff that they think they need right now. Right. Always been that way. Always been that way. Yeah. There's nothing you can do to fix that. The only thing that's going to happen is people are just going to, people are going to raise the price till the market can't bear it anymore. And then they're going to go down um, until there's more supply. And anyways, in that market that's happened, but you know, imagine that happening with all of these weird things that everybody's used to this consistent price on. Of course we have massive inflation. It's perfect. It would be weird that we wouldn't, you know, it's such a, a strange situation. Everybody loves to, get super mad at the printing of money and while that is a huge factor in in current inflation it's not the biggest factor the biggest one is the fact that people were willing to pay ridiculous sums of money to maintain their lifestyles they were willing to go into debt to maintain their lifestyle (laughs) lifestyles is a rich and famous tv show dallas J.R. ewing yeah think about all the people i mean you know you've you've talked to i'm sure many people who have done the same thing i've talked to dozens of people who did the same thing they went out and they would, they spent thousands of dollars on on Uber Eats and this and that because oh we can't leave our house so they have everything delivered to them for a year crazy that's not free that's a that's a that's an inflationary aspect of and the they, food they, costs. They, now they're used to it and they just keep doing it and do you remember the the imbalances that happened between wholesale and retail food costs oh it was crazy because yeah. at, at first it was all oh, retail food costs started to go up and they rationed things and put supply limits and all that sort of <clears> stuff because the amount of groceries that people were buying was crazy, right? Yeah. You went to Sam's, you could buy three cans of tuna. Yeah. And, the, and it made sense because people were used to going out. So we, it was a real economic indicator of Big shift. what percentage of, of meals people ate at other you know, restaurants and other places. And then you had, but then you had the reversal of that as, as people started returning to normal then the, there was an abundance of food in grocery stores and they couldn't sell it fast enough. And then the food in the, in the wholesale distribution chain started getting thin again because all these restaurants were ordering and filling their, their freezers and, and their produce and everything. It's just supply imbalances. I mean, this is just really basic stuff as to what's going on here. It's just a mismatch of supply and demand. And of course you're going to have inflationary deflationary events when those things happen. So and I'm go- the fed in particular uh, you know, they said they were stuck to their guns. That this is transitory, blah, blah, blah. And I, in hindsight, I believe they were right. Define transitory. Well, I mean, it goes up, it comes down. You know, 
Newton's, Newton's laws of gravity apply, right? And, and the answer to that is, well, of course they're right. Goes up, must come down. Might come down in 30 days, 30 minutes, 30 years, transitory. It's all relative to the baseline. Yeah, well, it depends on how long you can reco- how long it takes to recover to, to for something like that. Well, I think the answer is it took about two years. Probably would have taken a little bit less if it wasn't for um, uh, printing of money and, and basically making everybody comfortable. But you know, basically, you, you get you, you overreact and you get the consequences. So going back to what I was saying about my thousand dollar bond, and and so now new bonds are paying six percent on paper. My bond has gone down in value. On, on paper, it's gone down in value. Yeah, the, the, the mark-to-market price, the okay. valuation of that, of that bond is, is much lower. And yeah. what you said is mark-to-market, but that's not the way, that's, that's not appropriate accounting necessarily. Now, the thing that you have to realize is that there are accounting standards and there are accounting standards, and GAAP and all the other accounting standards are fairly well known in the accounting industry, but... Then you got China, who has Chinese accounting, which uh, basically, uh, <laughs> uh, if you can say ching chong, bong bong, bing bing, boom boom, and do that 50 times uh, forward, backwards, and inside out, that's pretty much a Chinese accounting system. And if you think it's not, you know, go to ching ching, bong bong, boom boom, and you can, I'm telling you, it's, it's crap. Yeah, okay. It is. I can call it the way I want to say it. But so that bond, um, you mark to mark, it's not worth $1,000. But if I say you know what, um, we're fine with it. We're going to hang on to it because we don't need to liquidate it. So when it comes due, it's $1,000. I made my 3%. Now, when you sell it, you sell at a loss. Okay, you sell at a loss. Or you, you know, then you turn around, you buy again. My point being is that timing is really important. Timing and transparency. And I also think, I'll give him credit where credit is due. He wrote the book. Uh, Ray Dalio talked about, you know, brutal honesty and radical transparency is everything. And that's the problem I think we have today that I want to kind of start to wrap up. We don't have brutal transparency. And if we do, it's so complex. It's buried in the reports that nobody reads and the people who should be reading it either are getting paid off in some cases or just passing it over or they're bloviating and, and they don't know what they're talking about. But, you know, the, there were, and, and of course, You've noticed that a lot of the talk about bank failures and everything have settled down now. Yeah, it's settled down now, but is it over? I don't. I don't think so. No. <clears throat> well, you said we don't have transparency, and I disagree with that. I don't know, because we do have transparency. Just nobody, nobody cares to read. As people I said, take, we have. People just we don't us. have transparency because it is so complicated that the people that we used to rely on. And, and, and I can go back to the investment advisory industry. You have people who are running mutual funds and ETFs, and they call themselves active managers. They're literally throwing darts like a monkey. They're not doing the, the kind of research that should be done, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely those people. They're hucksters are in every business, that's for sure. Well, um, I got Bridgewater on my brain. I can't get it out. Who's the uh, big uh, hedge fund out there that takes little bets and they're constantly shaving? I can't remember the name. Uh Renaissance, uh, Renaissance, Renaissance Technologies, their medallion fund. Tell everybody kind of what that works because that's the way it should work. Yeah, they, you can look it up. Uh, there's some interesting interviews, and uh, Jim Simons doesn't. They don't really. It's it's very much a black box. But a little bit of information has come out over the years. Uh, the fund uh, started in '88 or '89. 
been closed basically since day one. They have uh, two or three down years since the inception of the fund, which if you are have any brain cells rubbing together, that should make you go, wow. Uh, their average annual return is pretty pretty incredible. And it's their entire model is based on Jim Simons and his um, collection of data. He's a extremely smart individual who realized that uh, they would have a, a distinct advantage by collecting the data of the not just day-to-day but intraday trading behaviors and patterns and then correlating all of that information uh, to come up with trades. And they seems like very much subscribe to the concept that pretty much anybody in financial services uh, or especially markets get used to uh, at least if they've been in for a long period of time, they realize that there are only so many investment strategies, trades only scale to a certain size. Everything has its limit. And when it becomes painfully obvious that something is profitable and easy to do, everybody jumps on it and your arbitrage opportunity disappears. The value disappears. And so their theory, and it seems to be borne out by better part of uh, 30 what, almost 35 years of, of them of this uh, funds uh, investment returns that you take small for the size of their fund bets and uh, they put a time frame on when they expect to what the what the outside time frame of when they expect to exit their position and they just do that a whole bunch not with one thing but with lots and lots of different things uh, they're not they're not hitching their train to any one giant theory or giant a trading opportunity or one arbitrage event. They lots of little bets for consistent re- amounts of return, predictable return. They're the Cal Ripken of uh, investing. Sure. Yeah, exactly. But but also predictable, predictable and, and stomachable losses. That's the other aspect to it. Yeah, sure. Every trade doesn't win. Every idea doesn't win. But for the ones that fail, you're not losing a whole lot. And that's that's the other aspect to it that most people don't think about. They think of, oh wow, if I do this one thing, then I can I could I could make all this money. Well, what's the downside? How are you hedging that? What's your risk? Can you stomach the loss? So years ago, and we'll wrap up. I used to talk a little bit about Renaissance. He used to talk about <clears throat> things like um, you know th- these issues, and I try to get it in a way that people can understand it. I mean, you know, look the Los Angeles, uh, a uh, Los Angeles, the uh, Oakland um, Oakland A's. You know, Moneyball, Billy Bean, you know, it's not about hitting home runs. It's not about stealing bases. It's about getting on base. I don't care if you walk, bunt, hit, get on base. It's about working the numbers. And Moneyball and the, the mathematics behind that has changed the way things are. Just because a pitcher pitches like a submarine, that's if as long as he can get across the plate and get the guy to swing and strike out, that's, that's a good day. Yeah, Moneyball is a perfect example. Because when the A's were the only team employing the strategy, they got to the World Series or they got to the playoffs or whatever, right? Yep. They, they lost. They, they almost got to the World Series. So longest for, winning for, streak in history of baseball. For a team that was, you know, considered dog shit. Just bottom of the barrel and pay. Terrible, yeah. terrible pay, terrible staff, just terrible. Worse than the Rays are. Yeah, surprisingly. Um, but they employed a strategy that was very simple, that optimized for a certain metric that made sense that nobody else was doing. But then now you apply that to everybody and now everybody's just the same again. 
Yeah. That's exactly the point. No strat. Everybody in the world who wants to sell you their magical investment strategy. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people look around, browse online. There's tons of people out there. Oh, I'm going to sell you my magical, my magical trading strategy. I'm going to make you rich. That stuff, the the scammy stuff from the nineties is still out there. <laughs> it's more popular than ever. You have people selling, Oh, just buy my $5,000 course. I'll teach you how to, how to trade, turn a turn a dollar into a million. It's such a joke. But, you know, it's just an age-old truth that if if their thing was so profitable, why would they tell you about it? Because it isn't. Yep. Okay, final word, final thought, and then we'll get out of here. Uh, for most people, uh, money is nothing more than the value of their labor. So I think uh, your money being at least some fra- having a, at least a fractional relationship with uh, your, your time on this earth, uh, people should pay a lot more attention to money and understand exactly how it works and, and have a lot more uh, broad understanding of what's going on and pay attention to it. You don't have to obsess over it, but you should definitely have a lot better handle on it than most people we meet. Your average everyday people, especially people my age, nobody knows anything about anything. And those that know just a little bit are geniuses. It's sure it's the same in every time period. People that are young don't pay attention to the stuff they should pay attention to, and it bites them by the time they're older. But man, oh man, if, uh, if there was one thing you would pay, you should pay attention to. It should be time and your money. You said something that reminded me of something, and I'll say it again. Those who ran general stores and sold the pick and shovels to the 49ers who mined gold are the ones that made real bank with that ladies and gentlemen boys and girls want to know adios